sometimes in picking songs, you, you haven't, um, you don't know what I'm about to preach on. But when I'm singing those songs and I hit, see those words, I'm like, I should preach first and then we sing because they all tie in so well with the sermon, but you have no idea how. So I guess I'll go through this text together and then you'll be like, oh yeah, let's start the songs over because those were all so fantastic. Thank you so much. So many of us know what it's like to make a mess, right? We know what it's like to make a mess on a small scale, um, you know, spilled milk. We also know what it's like to make a mess of our lives, right? We know sometimes the mess we make has ramifications that are just minimal, right? But sometimes the mess that we make has lifelong consequences that we carry with us the rest of our life. And it's painful, especially when the mess we've made is clearly because I didn't take time to seek God and how to proceed, and I just plowed ahead and did what I wanted to do. And the mess we have to live with is often very painful. And what we're going to see in this passage today in Joshua chapter 9 is a mess that Israel has made. And it's a case study in how to not trust God and how to trust God. So let me pray, and then we will look at Joshua chapter 9. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for its, its practical application, its relevance to our lives when we see people that make messes just like we do in our lives, and then you show grace and mercy. And help us this morning to learn from you, to hear from you, that your spirit would work and encourage and convict and point us to Jesus this morning in a, in a passage that is maybe a little odd to some people. I pray that you would make it come alive. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is one of those passages that if you're reading the Bible on, like on a regular basis and you're going just chapter to chapter, you would read this chapter and go, this is weird, and go to the next page. It really is. So Joshua chapter 9, we've been going through the book of Joshua when I'm up here preaching, and we've seen that the book of Joshua is, is God's people coming into the promised land and God giving to them what he promised, right? We've seen him bring them across the flooded Jordan River. We've seen them uh, see the destruction of Jericho. We've seen them fail at the city of Ai, and then we've seen them come back after they dealt with sin that was in the camp, which is why they failed, right? And then we saw them come back in the last time that I preached and then destroy Ai, and then they renewed the covenant. And, you know, in the city of Ai issue, when they, they lost that battle, the reason was because of sin in the camp that they hadn't dealt with. But there was also, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, there was... A failure there because they also didn't lean on God. They didn't ask God, how should we go take the city? And like me, Israel doesn't learn quickly. Like, I repeat the same mess 
And once again, they did not see God. And we're going to see this story. I'm going to break it down into just five sections. You're going to see just five sections in the scripture laid out. Even your paragraphs and your text are kind of laid out that way. We're going to see five ways the text is broken down and then five ways to trust. Now, some of those ways to trust are bad. And some are like, this is what we need to do. So let's just jump in right away and see in the first section of this text, the alliance formed. So verse 1 of chapter 9, Joshua chapter 9, starts off with, As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, now, this, is, this would be the destruction of Ai, okay? They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. Now, I, I put the text up there weird off to the right because this response of all these people's names, the Amorites, all the ites, is, is completely different than what we've seen in the book of Joshua so far. Um, here... They, are, they heard what had happened, and they gathered together as an alliance of nations, cities, states, to fight. That's completely different than what we've seen in the past. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. It says, As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan... For the people of Israel, until they had crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. That, that's quite a different response to what we see on the right. And in fact, that, that hearts melting phrase happens a few times before this. The people in the land were terrified, and now... They look and say, you know what, if we just kind of band together instead of just one city at a time, we can go up against this Yahweh God. And that's what we see, first of all, is the first bad way to trust. And that is that they trust in their own strength. They trust in, if we just get enough people, enough army together, we can fight against these Israelites and that God Yahweh that they have. And, and Psalm 2.4 says what God thinks about that kind of thing. It says, the Lord sits in heaven and laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And you and I, trusting in our sheer resources, our own strength, that will fail us. When you think that you've got enough money to face the future, God will surprise you, Right? When you think that you, if you just learn enough about whatever it is I'm facing, that I can outsmart this trial, God will surprise you. And when God's enemies think that they simply have to gather enough large enough army, they're going to be sorely surprised, as we're going to see in Joshua chapter 10. Because those same group of peoples gather together, and in chapter 10, we're going to see really what happens to them. But let's just see the next section of our story, and that is the people deceived. So we'll read verses 3 through 13 here, in, if you're following along. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon, 
heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai. Now, I wish the kids were in here, because if I was really one of these on-top-of-it pastors and had a lot of prep time, I would have gotten costumes and had us act this out, because this is going to be cool. It's weird, and it would have been a lot of fun. But you'll just have to put on your imagination as we walk through this. So verse uh, 4, they, on their part, acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes. So you can picture that. They're getting beat-up clothes. Everything's beat up. They're looking super shabby on purpose. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, now notice the word change there. Uh, did I flip here? Yeah, yeah. So it says Hivites. Previously, it said the inhabitants of Gibeon. The Old Testament does this to us every once in a while. That's the same people, okay? And if you had seen earlier, the Hivites were listed. So of the group of nations that formed an alliance, one of them is saying, you know what? No, no, I think we're going to do this on our own. And they're working this plan together. All right, so the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps the men of Israel say to these people that are dressed up, looking all shabby. Perhaps you live among us. How can we make a covenant with you? So the Hivites, the Gibeonites, said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? We don't know you. And they said to him, from a very distant country, your servants come because of the name of the Lord, your God. We have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, that's the name of the kings that they're talking about, Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So verse 11, so our elders, the Gibeonites are speaking, our leaders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the long journey, for the journey, and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now and make a covenant with us, like a peace treaty. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it on the day we set out to come to you, but now it's dry and crumbly. And these wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. Now, for wineskin to go from new to bursting would take many, many months, probably a year. Okay, these wineskins were new, and, we, and behold, they burst, and these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So what we see here is that the people of Israel have been tricked. They've been deceived, right? This group of people called the Gibeonites, they're part of that alliance of nations. And interestingly, though, they're just neighbors. They're not from a far country, but they're trying to put on this disguise. And here what we see is another way to trust that's bad. 
And that's trusting in your craftiness, in your tricksiness, if you will. So what the Gibeonites have done is they've resorted to trusting in craftiness and using theatrics, right, to mislead Israel. And what's interesting is that the very fact that they would come up with this idea leads us to somehow think that they knew what God had already said to Israel back in Deuteronomy. I want to show you Deuteronomy 20, okay? Deuteronomy 20, God's talking to Israel, and he says, when you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. Now, you go down a few verses, and you find out that God's not talking about any city that Israel would go to. He's saying, thus you shall do to all the cities that are far from you, which are not cities of the nations here. So in other words, God's hold Israel, if you are fighting, like the kingdom is spreading, and we're beyond the area of the Canaanites, and you're in a far country, and you come up to a city, you can offer terms of peace to it if it's a faraway country, but not to the cities of the nations here. And then he says in verse 16 what they're supposed to do to those cities, but in the cities of these people, Yahweh, the Lord your God, is giving for you an inheritance. You shall save alive nothing that breathes. So the people in that area, God told them to destroy, but he said people from far away you can set up peace treaties with. Isn't it interesting that this group of people called the Gibeonites dressed up and said, hey, we're from a far country. We're, we're from a far country. You see how they're reading between the lines? They somehow knew that that was okay. So I think they're really shrewd here. They're really shrewd to disguise themselves like this and even wise in their words because look at this. In verse 10... It says, they're talking about what they heard that God, Yahweh, did to two kings who were beyond the Jordan. And he, they list those kings when they're talking to them. Those stories of Sihon and Og are from not just a couple of months ago. Those are from years ago. They were smart because they didn't say, hey, we just heard about how you destroyed AI. Because news would not have traveled that fast to such a far country if they were from a far country. But something that had happened years ago, that would have eventually gotten to a far country. See how tricky they were? They, they really um, were pretty smart, pretty smart. But here's the thing, trusting in their craftiness, that's deception, it's all being done in the name of self-preservation. They know this Yahweh God is told Israel to destroy them all. And they are saying, you know what? I think we could preserve ourselves if we try this trick. They know they're doomed. They saw what happened to Jericho. They saw what happened to Ai. And they know it will happen to them. So this self-preservation is trusting in their own craftiness. And that's quite a risky move. It really is, because you don't know if it's going to work. And I would say for us, it's foolish to simply trust in your creativity, which is really what they're doing here. But what's interesting in the providence of God, this trick works. So let's keep on going, and we're going to see that treaty 
with Gibeon is established. Verse 14 and 15 says, so the men took some of their provisions, and that's talking about Israel. So the, this would be where if Liam and I were acting this out, he would be all dressed up in, in old shabby clothes, and he's got some really dry, stale bread, kind of like out in the treats sometimes. <laughs> and he would offer it to me. The men of Israel said, hmm, tasted it? They look and they see these shabby clothes, and they are, that's what they're doing. They're taking some of the provisions, but did not, Israel did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Now, that doesn't mean use bad language. As we'll learn in a little bit, that means they made an oath. And here what we see is trusting in your senses. They were using their sense of smell. These people probably stunk somehow. Their taste, their eyes, they were trusting in their senses. And we know Proverbs, who, who can tell me Proverbs 3, 5, and 6? Trust in the Lord in all your ways and lean not on your own understanding that's exactly what Israel's doing right now. They're leaning on their senses, their own understanding. And you can just feel the mess starting to grow here, can't you? Look again. So the men took some of their provisions. What did they not do? They did not ask counsel from the Lord. And then look. It's like the way it's written here, it keeps amping up. The, the mess here. They didn't ask for the counsel of the Lord. They made peace with them. They made a covenant with them. And then they swore an oath. Like you are really building up anticipation here that this is a big deal happening. And how serious a thing to do to make a covenant with a nation without asking God whether this is a good thing to do. I mean, let me think, think with me. Like, what things in our lives is it okay for us to do without consulting God? Like, how do we know when the situation is serious enough that I need to pray about it? It's a little bit of a trick question, isn't it? <laughs> because, like, what decisions, I'm basically asking, what decisions are okay to figure out on your own? None, right? None. And in fact, Jesus even told us in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. So really, how much do we need him for? Everything, right? The old hymn says everything to God in prayer. Now, what I'm not saying, what I'm not saying is, okay, I'm going to take the next step. All right, God, should I take this next step? Okay. All right, God, should I take? That's not what I'm saying. And I'm not saying we need to like, Pray and wait for God to speak a voice that we hear from heaven. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that we need to do what Joshua did not do. And that is to seek God's blessing and help through prayer every day. Like every day, we ought to be asking God at the beginning of the day, would you bless each step I take? Would you show favor me to me today? 
God, would you give me wisdom today? And throughout the day, we ought to be asking God for direction, shouldn't we? I mean, prayer should encompass and fill our whole day. Um, when my mind is drifting, that's when I need to pray. When my heart is aching, that's when I need to pray. When I don't know what to do, that's when I need to pray. And when I think I know what I need to do, that's especially when I need to pray. When I think I've got to figure it out. But here's the thing. Do we do that? I, I confess to you, my own lack of prayerlessness. That does, what I just described is not Paul Fuller. I have some good days, but there are days that I go my whole day without having sought God's help and favor through the day. And to that extent that I do that, I'm trying to do life on my own apart from God, which is a very bad thing, and we'll end up in a mess. And you can see Joshua's in a bit of a mess, and we're about to see how big of a mess it is. Um, when we don't ask God for help, we do make a mess of our lives. And sometimes when we make that mess, we come into these dilemmas where we have to make a choice that both options seem like a bad deal. And those are very tricky situations sometimes to figure out. And I think you're going to see that's exactly what has happened here. So let's look at the fourth section of the text, the ruse uncovered. So what they had done is a ruse old word for they tricked them, right? And we're about to find out. Israel's about to find out. Verse 16 says, at the end of the three days, at the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, after Israel made a covenant with the Gibeonites, Israel, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And on, and the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Kephira, Birath, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the Israelites, against the leaders. Now let me just show you real quick. Now how well you can see that. These are the four cities that are mentioned that archaeologists have uncovered, by the way, so I, I want to show you this map because these are real places. This is real history. It's only about 10 miles to where Israel's camped at Gilgal. Only about 10 miles away. I mean, Georgetown's farther than that right now. And they described themselves as from a faraway country, right? Now, you, you may have noticed it did take three days to get 10 miles and this is a topographical map. If you can kind of, it's really kind of lousy, but it's pretty rough terrain. Um, but three days is not a faraway country, is it? No way. So keep reading here. Verse 19, but all the leaders said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. <laughs> They're like, what are we going to do we have sworn before God to not hurt these people. So here's what we're going to do. Verse 20, this we will do to them. Let them live. 
lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leader, the leaders had said of them. So here's what happened. Israel's figured out that they were tricked, but they also see that they are stuck in a dilemma. So you may be asking yourself, why couldn't Joshua just cancel this treaty? Why couldn't they just say, wait a second, that was set up under false pretenses. It's null and void because it was a false treaty. You can kind of think about it. Contracts today, if there's any kind of deception in that, that contract can be void because it's fake. Well, the problem is, is it's not that simple. It wasn't like they just had a piece of paper kind of covenant thing. All this swearing oath language you have in this text is why this is a big, hard deal. So in the ancient world, not just Israel, in the ancient world, Greeks, Romans, the Phoenicians, the Sumerians, all of them thought this way about oaths. They believed that gods watched over you when you made an oath and that those gods would hold you to the execution of that oath, how you carried that oath out. And Israel believed the same way, except they said it's the one true God, Yahweh, and when I make an oath, I am making something before the God of heaven, and I'm saying that if what I'm saying is not true, the God of heaven will strike me down. If I'm saying what is true, then he will keep me alive. That's how serious it is. And here's the thing. You may think, boy, that is so weird. It isn't. We still do this today. We just haven't borrowed that language the same way. Anytime someone takes an oath of office, anytime they're sworn into office, anytime you take an oath in court, or if you get married, you are enacting that same ancient right that's rooted in this sense that there is a God who oversees everything. And when someone says, for instance, as God is my witness, or I swear to uphold and tell the truth, when they do that, they are invoking an oath that says, if the God of, he said, it's saying the God of the universe is watching and he will hold me to what I say if it is in truth or error. It's that last part anyway. This is just a side comment that that's lost all of its meaning today in oaths, hasn't it? Right? <laughs> Those are meaningless to most people. But that's where it comes from. When you say, I solemnly swear, or you're holding that spouse's hands and you say, I promise before God and these witnesses, that's what you're saying. You're saying, hold me to this, or God strike me down. I think that may make our promises feel a little more weighty, I would hope, right? But that's not the point here about us. The point is Israel says, we have made an oath before Yahweh with these people. We've made a treaty, a covenant that is bound by this oath. And so bound up in an oath are curses for breaking the oath. And God is the one who will execute those curses. And when you make an oath, they're saying, they're asking God to confirm the truth of what 
they said. So if you just stop and think about this, Joshua has two options. And this is what I said. Sometimes the mess we make, we're left with options that are bad either way. He has two options. One, he could enforce the treaty. But if he does that, he's in a state of perpetual disobedience because God said, as we saw in Deuteronomy, these nations in this land you destroy, don't leave anyone alive. By allowing them to come and enforce this treaty, Israel's going to be in perpetual disobedience, allowing an idolatrous nation to live there with them. Or he could break the oath. And if you break an oath, you're under the wrath of God. How do you like those for them? How do you like those options? Huh? It's awful. Now, you take, think about the mess you've made. You, we can relate to this in our lives. I get in a stuck thing that nothing, whatever way I go, it feels like it's going to be up the creek, right? And that's kind of where Joshua's at. I have to figure out what to do. Now, right? Because of the oath that we swore to them. And this is what I mean by making a mess of our lives. But what we can learn here, how do we get out of the mess when I'm in two options that seem awful? By trusting in God. You're like, what? Trust me. That's what we're going to see. That's what Joshua did. When you find yourself in a situation where you've made a sinful choice, or at least a foolish decision, you don't fix it by committing another sinful choice. Okay? That's just real practical. The way out of your mess is not to add more mess. We have to go to God, ask him for wisdom, go to his people that he is filling with wisdom, right? And we need to go to his word because this is so chock full of wisdom. And that's exactly what Joshua did. You were like, how do you know that? Look at that phrase. Oh, go back. Right here at the end. So they became, that means they, the Gibeons, Gibeonites, became cutters of wood and drawers of water. If you've been paying attention, like, that's weird. Like, why'd they pick them to do those tasks? Joshua went back to the scriptures that Moses had already written out for them, the five first five books of the law. And it says, God gives an opportunity for who can be involved in this covenant, who can be a part of the people of God, even if they're not natural-born Jewish people. Who can be it? Look at verse 10. God's talking to his people. You are standing today, all of you, before the Lord your God. Actually, Moses is talking here. The heads of your tribes, your elders, and your officers, all the men of Israel. And who does he include in this? So it's all the leaders. Verse 11, your little ones, your wives, the sojourner who's in your camp. Sojourner is a non-Jewish, non-Hebrew person. From the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water. So those two groups of people right there can enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God. There, that is, Joshua went back to what had God said through Moses. What am I going to do? And so, I, I would say to you, 
in any situation you're in, as difficult as the temptation is, God will always provide a way to do the right thing and honor him. He even says that to us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There's no temptation that's overtaking you that's not common to man. And God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And we could go into that as a sermon in on its own. But the point is that God's faithful. And in your temptation, he will provide you a way to endure through it. Right? So, I do think that in Joshua's situation, where he had this treaty, and there was an oath, that he did have theoretically one more option that I haven't brought up. So, um, in Numbers 30, if you want to look at this, in Leviticus 5, there's this concept of a rash vow. And God gives specific instructions about if you've made a rash vow... You can, there's a way to get out of it. But Joshua doesn't take that. And I think there's a reason why. Because if he took that option, he would have to execute judgment on Gibeon. And by taking this option you're about to see of the woodcutters and water drawers, it's an opportunity for mercy instead of judgment. Mercy instead of judgment. And this is where, while there's a lot of stuff in this passage that's awesome and helpful and practical for us, it gets real with us right now in the gospel, okay? So the fifth section of this passage, the pagans are delivered, okay? Those, you could also put in the idiots, right? That's us, are delivered. Verse 22 through 26, Joshua summoned them. And said to them, why did you deceive us, saying, we are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now, therefore, you are cursed, which means they're under God's wrath, right? And some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. Look at this answer. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that Yahweh, the Lord your God, had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you. And we did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them. And delivered them. He rescued them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. So, what we see is that Joshua's developed a plan that shows mercy instead of judgment. So what happened is the Gibeonites are brought under the protection of Yahweh, under the protection of God. And more than simply just protection, they're made servants to help in the worship of God. Did you catch that? Did I miss? Oh, I did. I wasn't keeping up, was I? The last paragraph. 
God made them day, that day cutters of wood. Where? For the congregation and for the altar of the Lord. Where is the altar of the Lord located? Before the temple, it was in the tabernacle. These people are made, are, they're given the job to work at the tabernacle every day. Now, isn't that interesting? Because here's what we're going to learn in this, is trusting in your rescuer. The Gibeonites themselves threw themselves at the mercy of Joshua and had to trust him to be their rescuer. So what happens to the Gibeonites after this? So what a woodcutter would be is the person who does every day, all day long, is cutting down wood and hauling it to the tabernacle. Now, why would they be hauling wood to the tabernacle? Liam, Wesley, why would you need wood at the tabernacle? Wes? To burn offerings. There's constant fires going at the tabernacle because God had required constant sacrifices to be offered. Water drawers every day, all day long, were to go get water and bring it to the tabernacle for the washing procedures, rituals that God had laid out that needed to happen, that were always showing cleansing of sin. Sacrifices always showing that blood needed to be shed for sin. Washing to show that we need to be cleansed from our sin. So every day, think about this. These pagans who are not children of Abraham by birth, are given mercy, they could have been destroyed. They deserve to be destroyed, just like Israel does, by the way. They could have been destroyed, and they were given an opportunity to see the gospel portrayed every day in the worship of the tabernacle, to every day see mercy is being given out by this God, Yahweh, every day. And what's interesting is Gibeon is mentioned all through the rest of the New Old Testament. Um, their city is made one of the cities where the Levites, the priests, live. That's in Joshua 21. David puts the tabernacle in Gibeon in 1 Chronicles 16. Solomon offered burnt offerings in Gibeon in 1 Kings 3. And then we read in Nehemiah. So after Israel goes away to Babylon and is brought back, we see that the Gibeonites return with Israel. So they went with them to Babylon and came back with them. So while we see all the interesting applications about trusting God, making good decisions, and practical stuff in this, what I think in is here is most awesome is the gospel is portrayed. Because how the Gibeonites came to God parallels how sinners like you and me come to God. Now, except for the deception part, the very beginning, okay? <laughs> Hear me out. The manner is the same in which every sinner comes to Jesus Christ. First, they came to Joshua before the judgment was executed. Right? There is a day of judgment coming. God will execute judgment. You don't want to make, try to make a decision that day. To serve him. Because every person on that day's knee will bow. And you don't get an opportunity out that day. Today is the day you come before judgment happens to Jesus. 
And just like Christian in the book of Pilgrim's Progress, if you've never read that, I highly recommend it. There's modern versions. There's a neat version animated on Amazon. I encourage you to watch it. Christian, carrying that burden on his back, knew that he was in the city of destruction, that judgment was going to come to that city. And he ran from it to know, I need to go away from the city of destruction. And the Gibeonites came. They saw the doom that lay ahead of them. And they saw their need for mercy. And they came to Joshua, whose name means Yahweh is salvation. (laughs) But it wasn't only fear that motivated the Gibeonites. Because if you look at verse 25, I don't think I have it up there, but verse 25 it shows that they said, what we are in your hand, whatever seems good and right in your sight to you, do it. So it wasn't simply fear that motivated them. That's a recognition that we have done wrong. And we're in your hands. You do what's right. And that's what we've got to do when we come to Jesus. You cannot come with your badges. I've done it. God, you got to take me. No, you've got to come and say, I tricked, I've been a tricker. I've been putting on ruses all my life. I've been dressing up in fake robes of righteousness. And I need you. And you do what's right with me. But I know your son, Jesus, hung and bled and died for me. So if you're here today, And you're hoping that on that day you stand before God, that he'll take you because the the bad you've done is somehow outweighed by the good. Don't believe in that. Because that good over here is not even good enough. And your fake pretty robes are garbage. They're, They're filthy rags, it says in Isaiah. Come to him and say, I need you because today is the day. Judgment's coming and we don't know when it is. Today is your opportunity. You know, and for us that have already come to that point where we see our need, being a slave, which is what happened to the Gibeonites. Frankly, they were made slaves. Think about that. Your job in life is to go get wood. And that's all you get to do until you die. How many got jobs like that? Right? (laughs) How many of you grumble and complain? Right? We, I get bitter. (laughs) When I'm asked to do something menial, I'm tempted to think that that's below me. I shouldn't have to do this. But when I take time to remember that I don't deserve better, I'm in your hands, God. Whatever seems right to do, do it. Give me grace to do the boring. But when we don't do that, that's how we lose sight of the gospel and our pride starts to preach to us. So a Gibeonite daily, every day, would simply have to remember the destruction of the city of Jericho and the city of Ai, which is just to the north, about five miles. All they would have had to remember is all the women and children who were destroyed there and that that would have been them. You and I, every day, remember, I deserve the destruction because I don't deserve, I, I've not been what I need to be. I've 
I need you, Jesus. A Gibeonite helping with the sacrifices would lay his eyes on the altar of the Lord where the blood of the lamb was spilt and see that the life he or she had was so much more than they deserved. Carried wood and water is more than I deserve. And the mercy shown should overwhelm our hearts and cause us to say, like the psalmist, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness because I know that's where I would be. So if you haven't cast yourself at the feet of Jesus today, do it. Don't wait. Don't think, oh, when I get this done, that, that thing I want to enjoy, today, today is the day. And Christian, if you've seen all the messes you've made by not taking counsel from the Lord, go to him and repent. Just plead for mercy because here's the thing. He's always faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us and give us grace to keep going forward. He is good and he is kind and he will never turn you away. Ever. Ever. So come and receive mercy and grace. God, we need your mercy. We need your grace. Thank you for giving us, Jesus, the greater Joshua to show us and be for us our rescuer, our redeemer. Help us to live daily remembering you are our only hope in this life, not anything we've done. In Jesus' name.